Are you ready to clear a new path? Are you ready to get vulnerable and lead with truth? Welcome to Clearing a New Path Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Clearing a New Path Podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-oppressive rural Canada, one that genuinely embraces authenticity and is rooted in reconciliation. Each episode, we'll examine issues and look for collective solutions all outside of the city limits. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. Racial inequities exist in Canada, and particularly in rural, remote, and northern Canada. I have heard the stories. Just one example is a Black woman entrepreneur in rural Alberta who told me of the racism she experienced at her local Chamber of Commerce. She's the reason I enlisted the help of post-secondary students from the Venture for Canada Entrepreneurship Program specifically from racialized and marginalized communities, to create the report, How Inclusive Are Canada's Chambers of Commerce? A report card. They created the assessment and the report through their own eyes, their own lens. And the words to action DEI mobilization map was created from recommendations of that report by another set of Venture for Canada students. As a white settler, am I the right person to facilitate a conversation about race? I again enlisted the help of students from the Venture for Canada program. This time, I asked the students to help me rethink the podcast. What more could I be doing to bring attention to contentious and often uncomfortable topics in rural Canada like racism? Yvonne Wang and Utej Manava, both Western University students, took on the challenge of planning a podcast episode about racism from a rural versus urban perspective. Yvonne's studies are currently around health, and Utej is studying data science. They hosted Kirsten Schmidt from the Rural Perspective. Kirsten is a research assistant with the Rural Development Network and a student at the University of Alberta. She grew up in rural Alberta. From the urban perspective, Cedric Richards, a local travel influencer from London, Ontario, added his lens to the conversation. I listened backstage and it was really evident to me because Yvonne Utej and Cedric are all people of color. There was so much more context, richness, authenticity, and fullness to the conversation. I am so grateful to all of them for taking this on. What are your personal experiences um, surrounding racism within your individual communities? Again, it could be something you've witnessed uh, or you've personally experienced or even both. My experience with racism in uh, communities, uh, it's a lot of it is very, very subtle. 
there it is uh, rare to have somebody, let's say, call you a racial slur or some other very blunt racist comment, you know, um, usually like those, uh, like those racist slurs that I've experienced, like the N word and the whole deal that's happened a lot that happened a lot in my childhood, because like a lot of people had picked it up from somewhere. And that's an example of an incident that has happened in my uh, childhood. And you kind of ask yourself later on where they got that from and you know what kind of unconscious or conscious biases did they grow up in that this incident happened the way that it did as well my travels throughout this province uh there's more often than not a lot of people uh tell me to be careful while um or before or while traveling um because they perceive that the towns the uh counties that I travel to are majority white and some people fear that something might happen to me. I have not really experienced anything. Of course I'm I'm becoming from like a place of let's say male privilege talking about this, but um I have yet to uh run into danger while traveling through rural communities based on I guess you could say like racial abuse or anything like that. I have heard stories, obviously. I have uh, People have told me their own individual stories, and those are definitely to be believed and to be taken in a, into account. But um, a lot of the racism I faced is very uh, subtle in nature. Like, you don't think about it until, like, maybe after it happens, you have to take some time to process it. It just reminds me of something similar to, like, you know, the Martin Luther King quote in the letter from a Birmingham jail where he says, you know, the greatest enemy isn't the um, Klansmen or whatever. It's, like, that white moderate. They don't know that they're being racist, but the impact is something else. There's a stark difference between the impact and the intent. So Yeah, I definitely can resonate with that because sometimes I would not notice anything until years later. Like, And then I realize, oh, maybe this was something that could have been worded differently. But at the time, because of the social expectation of wanting to fit in with most people and going with the flow of the conversation, I never really realized like what was being said uh, until a long time after. Yeah, so just growing up in rural communities, obviously, um, I'm speaking from the privilege of being white, <laughs> but there is definitely a lot of like unconscious drops of subtle racism in conversations, in just actions as well, that I think might also come from a lack of awareness, just because growing up in those communities, I know that the majority is by far not colored or was born and like raised there and has family, like generational family there. And so they often, when someone new comes in, it is a complete turnover and uh, they just don't know how to act, I find is the, the problem. And it's definitely a lack of awareness. And when you kind of point it out, they're often ashamed or they didn't know how to act better because of the way that they were raised. It became a norm. Like it became a norm to either speak that way or... Um, use that type of lingo or something else, um, which obviously is completely wrong and inexcusable. But 
yeah, definitely like the lack of awareness and things like this podcast, um, bringing that awareness to those smaller communities is definitely something that is really needed and something that has been lacking the last few years for sure, but hopefully continues to get better. I totally agree. Moving on to the next question, because we mentioned basically the unconscious biases that surround racism mostly for most people, I was wondering how prevalent is is racism in your community currently? Do you think that this unconscious bias has slowly become a little bit more conscious over time? Or do you feel like as people are still passing on those generational implicit biases? That's a great question if it's becoming conscious. To speak to the first part of the question, racism in London, it's getting to be more conscious, I guess you could say. Just two years ago, and the trial's currently happening right now, It's I think it's day 20 of the Nathaniel Veltman trial, where he was alleged to have murdered the family of four Muslims in Hyde Park. Yeah, and it brought a lot of bad, I guess you could say, bad experiences with racism to the forefront. A lot of Londoners a lot of people in the area shared, you know, their stories. The local progressive conservative candidate in that area for the 2014 election, he had posted a note on uh, Facebook about how he was a witness, I guess you'd say, to incidents of subtle racism. He was He's white, and um, he was the successor candidate of that party to this... Um, Arab man who had contested the by-election about a year prior, and um, there was a lot of comments. The white uh, PC candidate had um, observed that a lot of uh, people at the doors would say, oh, I'm glad someone like you is our candidate. I tried volunteering last year, but the um, office reminded me of the Middle East and a bunch of other comments about, like, just... Um, subtle comments alluding to like race and language and stuff like that and he had brought up a great point that he bluntly said London's a racist city that pretends it isn't and it brought up you know like a lot of things uh for me like how people were um they they would say things they would couch it behind language or other actions but they weren't actively let's say calling me the n-word or other or they weren't using like outward racist tropes or whatever but you could but i was like thinking back then oh wow this person was really trying to say it with their whole chest but they couldn't because they felt it wasn't they knew it wasn't i guess socially acceptable so they couched it behind some coded language but i have faced uh i guess you could say a bit of an uptick of like of that now conscious uh, mask off, you know, I've been called the N word while biking on a bike path or whatever. Like it's, um, people are getting out there. I guess people are, um, we're in a more polarized world politically and people aren't afraid to like, just get out there and, you know, say whatever is on their mind in that respect. So yeah, it's, um, London's got a bit of a problem with racism and often they, people feel that they um, can just kind of stick it behind a corner and just say, no, we're a progressive community. We're all welcoming here. But like, there's that other side of it, you know, where people um, have this resentment towards multiculturalism and the like. So yeah, it's a bit of a problem. It's getting, it's um, kind of, you know, burgeoning and it's um, 
people are not afraid to hide, I guess, their hate in my view. Yeah, Cedric, I think uh, absolutely like valid concern. Um, personally, as a student here, I, and I'm not sure about Yvonne's perspective, but I'm not as involved in the municipal elections. But I think it definitely, um, I've seen instances or heard instances just, you know, being in the student community here of racist comments, microaggressions towards the candidates here that, that we elect within our own student student body. And it's surprising, you know, considering how diverse of a city London is. And within the student body as well, we have representatives from everywhere representing many nationalities and ethnicities. And even then, um, even with all the education and all the awareness that we, we, we see on campus, uh, we still continue to hear these comments, uh, even within our own election. So definitely just surprising. Um, Kirsten, do you have anything to touch on that as well? I think that with the amount of, as you guys have said, like multiculturalism and a lot of diversity has um, slowly seeped its way into uh, more rural communities. I think it definitely is improving. I think obviously it will, this seems to be a topic that will always be prevalent. Uh, unfortunately, like no matter how much we do or no matter how much we change, um, there will always be those people that are a little bit stubborn. Um, and uh, just hopefully with the it's not a generational curse. Hopefully, eventually it can wean itself out. Um, I think also with the prevalence of um, online schooling has really, uh, because of COVID, has really also managed to help get people a little bit out of their own communities, as well as social media. Like, that's been a huge uh, deal as well. Um, and it just, like I said earlier, it's just a whole thing of awareness. Um, just being able to get these people outside of their communities and open their eyes has really been um, helpful. Uh, so, yeah. I could see it going down. Hopefully the, the prevalence decreases and diminishes. But um, yeah, like I said, I'm not sure how fast that will be. <laughs> I think it's really interesting how uh, racism has been, I feel like, more aware in most people's minds. But the thing is, the awareness doesn't necessarily mean that um, people are going to be less racist. Like, it's interesting how the more aware someone is, the more strongly they might feel about it. Kind of like what Cedric said, like, it's polarizing. Like, the more it's prevalent in society, the more people are going to be pro polarized, which is unfortunate, but that seems like what it's been doing the past few decades. For the next question, it's most more touching on specifically um, urban and rural areas. So, um, if you have any input or like any comparison, I know Cedric, you say uh, that you travel um, across for journalism. So I was I'm really interested in your point of view on this question. So do you think issues of racism are different in urban versus rural areas in your uh, in your opinion? In my experience, again, I've lived in London my whole life, so it's more that I have more of an urban experience i feel that you know they manifest like these um issues of racism between communities they um, manifest themselves differently through each community no matter whether it's like london like london um people aren't saying it with their, even though it's like getting up there you know in terms of like outward racism people still aren't for the most part saying it with their whole chest or whatever like a racial slur or they're not doing a cross burning or whatever for example but in rural communities i have found and i haven't seen it with my own two eyes from time to time i'll read like a small town newspaper that i pick up or whatever um 
in May of 2021, this is April or May of 2021, so about two and a half years ago, I did a bike ride to New Hamburg, which is in Wilmot Township, which is just west of uh, Kitchener. So it's kind of in the shadow of the GTHA there. And um, I was reading a newspaper that I picked up in the uh, grocery store and it talked about a White Lives Matter rally happening. That scared the crap out of me to to just put it succinctly. Like I'm in this town and like not too like not too long ago there was this White Lives Matter rally and um I guess Wilmot was contending with a I guess a racial reckoning, I guess you could call it. There was a uh township councillor who had a racialized partner and um put up with a a lot of um a lot of racial abuse because of his background and he would he was very outspoken against racism and I was just like wow this is wild that like they're dealing with that out in the open and um I'm not naive about it but it's still just wild to just see it rural communities in my experience there's been a it's been a real point of contention like dealing with racism or you know um racist reckoning I guess you could call it especially now that um you have I guess, increased racialized populations in these small communities. There's a a difference, but it's not so much stark between urban and rural communities. They just manifest themselves differently, depending on, like, who's there. Yeah, that's really cool to hear, because I haven't had much experience myself living in a rural community or going to rural communities. So I definitely don't feel like there's a big difference myself personally from what I've experienced but um yeah I definitely have to um, experience more and to see like what the specific differences are like you said like the small ways that it manifests itself what would you both say about educational spaces do you think educational spaces in your community specifically um, would be considered a, a safe and welcoming place to Uh, people of various races just growing up in a small town I know that in elementary school we definitely it was definitely a white majority school like um I think we maybe had one colored person but that was like in kindergarten and then after that there was nothing but then like again high school we had like another uh colored family kind of came to the community I do know that there was some issues particularly in high school it wasn't as prevalent in elementary school but definitely in high school there was stigma but definitely a lot of the microaggressions as you guys have said before it was definitely a topic that was brought up in many um uh, school like assemblies and stuff were done on it but obviously as you guys have said awareness does not always you know change sometimes it can make things worse so yeah that was definitely Definitely something that I saw a lot, but then getting older and also like as the years went on, we definitely had a lot more diversity was brought into the community. And personally, I saw a decrease in um, many things, maybe not so much the microaggressions in everyone, but um, most of the most of the people that I surrounded myself with, there was less prevalence of it. I found that educational spaces were definitely a lot better. I last went to college about seven years ago, but um. The uh, but educational spaces being like safe places for various cultures to like get together. Um, I went to um, elementary school and high school and like the same 
corner of like Northwest London. And it was a mixture of cultures. We had a lot of refugees from various places in Europe, Asia. Um, I was more often than not the only Black student in my classes. And if I wasn't, I was probably like one of the only like Black Canadians in my class. So you get to learn from people, get to like learn from people's various like lived experiences. That's a thing that's, I guess you could say, built in infrastructurally. But again, like awareness doesn't always translate to, I guess you could say, racial harmony because people will still have the capacity to, I guess, um, whether it's like microaggressions or something outright with their whole chest where um, it depends on like um, people's own environment at home uh, where they're, I guess, instilled with various, their own values from their own family. And with that comes like various biases, whether they're unconscious or not. And going into college, I went to Fanshawe. I'm not entirely sure how it's changed when it comes to like international students. When I went there uh, for the years that I went there, it was a diverse place nonetheless. I think half the class uh, came from like a small town around like London, like whether it was Kincardine or Stratford or Chatham Kent or Simcoe. There wasn't much in the way of like racial tension, I guess you could say. It was a safe place for us all to kind of get together and interact with each other, no matter where we came from. I'm not sure what it's like at Fanshawe today. I went to middle school for a few years in a, in a school where it was a majority. Um, it was Caledon, so just the population there is different from where I was. It was just a bit farther north. But I wouldn't say it was unsafe. It's just there's a bit of a, a lack of shared understanding about some things that come up in conversation as a kid or just about life as a whole. And those differences kind of evaporate a bit more as you get older, I guess, because maybe you go into more diverse spaces or people just are more educated about the world. Um, and that's natural as you as you age. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think um, teens are always a little mean in high school. So that's definitely a factor. At Western currently, like uh, as a student from Western, I do think Western is um, a safe space or generally safe space uh, for um, people of all uh, races. And I think that's because of, I do get like a lot of emails actually, or like emails every year talking about EDI. So I do think Western is doing a pretty, like a decent job at um, this topic in general. So what do you guys think are educational spaces in your community or actively engaging or doing anything about racism? I think like you've kind of said, there's definitely a lot of things in newsletters, um, emails sent out to the students. Um, There's definitely a lot of clubs as well that uh, do such a great job, like student-like clubs that do such a great job of the advocacy and everything. I also do think that the, the institutions also do sometimes a really good job of like the celebratory days or supporting students when it comes to things like rallies or gatherings and things like that. Uh, I think that the schools and institutions have always done a good job of that. I will say that like I've noticed like professors or teachers um, always seem to be very supportive um, and definitely try to their best abilities to uh, make it an inclusive 
space. Yeah, I've noticed that professors, especially, are more attentive to these top to the topics compared to my like high school or elementary school teachers. Cedric, do you have? I know you went to college like a while ago, but if you have anything to add, or we can move on to the next question. Going even a bit further back about uh, teachers, about um, professors, about institutions, kind of having their grasp on, I guess you could say, the subject of race. I did not have a Black teacher until grade 11. And um, I believe today she is one of less than a handful of um, Black teachers in the um, school board. It's a big school. It's one of the largest school boards in the province where um, it's three counties and like thousands tens of thousands of students yet yeah, only like three black teachers so um i was able to spur that one particular semester in 2008 i was able to like i guess you could say see myself the teacher was talking about things that i had mainly only heard in the home and i was like wow i can see myself i guess reflected and if only for this one particular class so when i found out that she was like one of three black teachers. I was like, wow, we need, we have a lot of work to do. In general, schools, I guess you could say they do their best. For example, when you get called the N-word in like, or some other, or microaggression or something outward, a lot of these strategies to address, you know, equity, diversity, inclusion, a lot of them in my previous experience, they miss that a lot of people had unconscious biases and stuff like that. I never, I didn't hear of, you know, EDI or whatever until like, I think a couple of years after I um, left college and had to do training for the, um, a volunteer position I had. So schools and uh, institutions like that, I guess they did their best, but, uh, you know, it was all oh, we're all different cultures, we should all automatically, we're all in racial harmony when, uh, you know, I think they fell short in my experience, but they did their best, but it's best is not enough. We had the opportunity to converse on how education played a role or educational institutions played a role. Um, but would you both be able to touch on some media outlets that are popular in your community that um, you would say fuel or promote even even if it's on a minuscule level uh racial stereotypes and biases and, and if so how how do they do so so in london we've we have um our daily the london free press we have cbc london which is mainly online and radio we have london news today which again online and radio um global news radio online we don't have many alt weeklies or any of that anymore but um the ones that I do check on a daily basis. Oh, and CTV, obviously, television. When it comes to the subject of... Oh, and we also, another uh, media source, we have an Instagram account called The London Blog. It's um, tens of thousands of followers. I see that, like, traditional media, you know, they have their, I guess, um, sometimes they do have their shortcomings. There's been, like, a few incidents where they've slipped up or whatever, and they've been called out on it by peers of mine and my you know experience but um but they do a better job than i guess you could say the um than new media because i'm unsure of whatever journalism training that people in new media have but like 
I've seen like racist comments on an Instagram post London blog will make like they'll say somebody was arrested for something and it like a lot of comments or will go back to that person's race or there's like a a cultural festival and there will be like negative comments about there will be like jokes riot racist jokes about that particular festival in Banting where I went to high school they ripped down the pride flag and there was a, um, until it was shut down there was like a flurry of like homophobic and transphobic comments on that particular post um in my experience like traditional media for all of its perceived faults they have done somewhat of a better job than new media because again when you're just doing citizen journalism there's not much in the way of like standards and you're probably not going to face repercussions other than somebody telling you oh you um screwed up there you know that kind of thing yeah you brought up some great examples um and definitely like when you're when you're comparing the traditional outlets uh, for example like a city of london to something larger for the country there is just much less at risk so you're right about that and then some of the examples you mentioned are also really relevant and i've seen it especially when it comes to uh, reporting crime the descriptions that are unnecessary that really make you wonder like like why was that mentioned why is that necessary to to you know what's being reported on moving on to a more general i guess kind of question what do you guys think about uh the issues of race intersecting with uh, other identities that people have like for example gender or uh, sexuality or socioeconomic status we've often hear about intersectionality as a topic but i feel like it doesn't get discussed or given examples as much so i was just wondering what your guys his experience with this topic was in the uh, black community. Um, I can't be a spokesperson for you know the black community, but in my experience, when it comes to the intersection, and I, again, I'm straight, so maybe there's um, another bias in talking about this. There is a lot of, I guess you could say, um, with the intersection of race and sexuality or whatever. There's a lot of apprehensiveness for, I guess you could say, the black community to say you know like gay is okay you know trans women are women trans men are men and stuff like that and a lot of it in my experience as a black man is tied to like religion a lot of um depending on i guess whatever religious denomination or religion you have you and you pick and choose whatever teachings you have and whatever religious upbringing you have i've noticed you know that apprehensiveness and stuff like that just the other day i was um reading for example about the naacp and this is in the u.s and like coretta scott king and how they had to like i guess not so much twist the arms but they had to basically tell the black community hey like lgbtq rights they're like the fight for civil rights like they're the same you know they're in the same fight together kind of thing um and coretta scott king had to say hey my husband would have been advocating for them as well if he was still alive there's i wouldn't call it tension but there's ap- there's a hesitation there's apprehensiveness and i've seen that in my community to help join that fight for lgbtq rights i think um with intersectionality like you said 
there's an apprehensiveness to basically like combine both topics because there's so many factors that come into play when you're already part of a minority group or there's just so many other factors that make it hard to talk about two things at once or how these two things work together and play a role in your life. Kirsten, do you have anything to add on or like, have you heard or have you seen like a prevalence of the topic of intersectionality in rural communities or not as much? No. So unfortunately to agree with you, yeah, it's a very segregated topics. Um, like one is always without the other, but I think Cedric hit it right on the head. It's there's a huge play about religion in there as well, like um, culture as well. Like I think it's a it's a whole thing that needs to be brought together and really combined as an explored topic. Just because, yeah, it is definitely very, <laughs> very separated when you when you see one or the other. It's always this month is for this or this month is for this, but there's never a lot of uh, like indulgence into how the two might work together or crossover. Those are both great perspectives. Personally, intersectionality was something I learned about in anthropology, but it's interesting to hear about your personal experiences and and seeing that actually come to life. We talked a little bit about generations. Uh, I know Kirsten was talking about how the unfamiliarity with outsiders is something to do with you know generations of family being in the same city and not being exposed to others or uh, to a smaller scale. Um, and we're also seeing more activism within the younger generation specifically. So what role do you think the younger generation can play specifically in shaping more inclusive communities in Canada? I think the younger generation plays a huge role, probably the most important role. Those are that are uh, either teens or young adults, I think, make the most impact. They seem to be the most involved in the advocacy. Um, they are the most important when it comes to teaching those younger than them, like elementary school or preschool age children, just how to act like that. Those are the most vital years. Those are the most um, sensitive years to learning. And as well as the older generation. I find with in a personal experience, a lot of my friends or the people that I am around, it's always like, oh, my parents do this or, oh, I can't really tell my parents this because they have this stigma or this bias or something like that. And it's it is upsetting. And I get that I get the fear and the apprehension of speaking to their parents in a certain way which is so funny and ironic considering that I, these are the same people that I see out on the street willing to fight a complete stranger or stand up to a complete stranger, but is completely terrified to even talk to their own family about it. It's an, definitely an interesting point. But yeah, like I said, I think the younger generation plays the most important role considering those are the ones that tend to do and not think, not in a bad way, but in a good way, more so that they take action. They tend to be the ones that step out there and do do the grunge work and get things going. Yeah, that's also very relatable to me personally. My parents weren't raised in Canada, or so they were raised in an environment where the people around them were very similar to them. And sometimes they would make comments. Obviously, they're not a bad people, but it's those implicit biases that us younger generations have to call out. Uh, sometimes I am really scared to call them out, but I do remind them every time that they say these uh, unconscious biases that um, to consider a different perspective. I feel like that the best way to approach 
um, the older generation, especially your parents, is to try to understand how and how they're thinking of these implicit biases first. And then because you are their children and you do know them a lot more than total strangers, it's definitely best for your own family to call you um, to call you out than other people. Cedric, do you have anything or any um, personal experiences with this topic? Yeah, I'd like to um, touch on it briefly um, with regards to like the role that the younger generation plays. They They have baked in the the least amount of biases or whatever compared to older generations and stuff like that you know the older you get i guess the you get set in your ways not to put in a black and white thing but of course um for the sake of argument here the role that they play is to like set the table and to make it better for other generations to kind of leave that world behind and like to instill in future generations, I guess, better practices for interacting with people. I've known this, you know, as like someone who's getting older, like seeing how the younger generation is interacting with each other. So yeah, just they're just to end it off with, you know, like their um, goal is to set the table for the next several generations. That's insightful because oftentimes we think of how can we fix things by changing what has already happened. But it's definitely also very important to think about how we can set things up for the future. And to end off this podcast with the last question, do you guys think that there are any opportunities for intergenerational involvement? And to make this question more specific, how can the youth engage with older generations or just people in general that might be more closed off in their ways of thinking. So how can we try to communicate with people that are stubborn or that have a hard time opening their minds to these topics? That's a really interesting question. Part of me wants to say, you know, you have to meet people where they're at first and then kind of slowly over time bring them to where you're at. The older generation, for lack of a better term, older generations, they have their biases that are going to take a while to be reconciled with reality and that kind of thing. And I guess you could say shaming um, wouldn't do much in the way of like, you know, reconciling the generations because like, it'll keep them um, stuck where they're at and they'll kind of burrow even further. Yeah, I agree with that last point particularly. I think any type of shaming is just going to make people more, it's just going to antagonize people. It's just going to make them more um, defensive and defensive people tend to get more aggressive and more aggressive means um, a little bit more mean. I think regarding the intergenerational cl- collaboration, I think it's it's a great idea and obviously it needs to be done. Just something on a more positive note, I find that sometimes the older generation surprises me. Sometimes I'll be talking to someone who's older that I might have my own personal bias thinking, oh, they're going to be part of this generation. They're not going to have the same thoughts that I do. But then they'll say something and I'm completely surprised. And it's a really pleasant surprise um, because sometimes they're a lot more aware and a lot more conscious than I expected or I thought. And then that kind of feels a little bit guilty on my part because I'm like, oh, wow, like this person is way more open. This person is way more accepting than I originally had assumed. But yeah, I think I think there's a lot of stigma that also goes around uh, approaching someone who is from an older generation or who might have 
the potential of having those wrong ideas that often I am surprised that how inclusive they are. And then just on how to communicate with these stubborn people, I find um, exposure. Exposure is a huge part in this. Um, Having these people talk, make conversation for someone that they might have a complete um, bias against or a stigma or some type of microaggression or racism, having them have a conversation with uh, that particular group of people, it often leads to something that is great. Obviously, this is not always the outcome. Sometimes it is the opposite outcome, but more often than not, I've found that it it actually tends to bring some good things to the table. Um, I find that they end up learning a lot more about that person or about that particular group of people, or they they are able to crush myths or uh, things that they might have thought that don't end up actually being true, or they get to educate themselves by having this conversation with this person firsthand. Um, and really like open their doors and open their eyes and see that maybe things are not always as as they thought maybe the things that they were passed down to them are not actually true yeah Kirsten thank you for that uh positive note uh, because you're definitely right there are instances where you know you do talk to another person and surprisingly they're more progressive than you you you'd assume and hopefully that's a trend we see going forward in 50 years people can look at the older generation and say oh everybody's progressive and it's a normal thing you know it's not something uncommon, something uh, you don't expect. Thank you both. Thank you, Cedric and Kirsten, for joining this episode of uh, the Clearing a New Path podcast. Overall, your perspectives were incredibly valuable. They shined a light on the different takes from both types of communities, rural and and urban, and that was really, really insightful. You know what would really help me and this podcast keep going? Leaving us a four-star rating or even a review, I'd really appreciate that. To connect with other rural Canadian co-conspirators, subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter or drop me an email. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Luni Lenape, and Adirondwan peoples. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler, I'm committed to deepening my understanding of colonialism dismantling other systems of oppression. My commitment to the TRC calls to action and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and to Spirit for the opportunity for love and connection and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who I believe still walk the earth. Until next time, 